This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello and welcome back to the Northern Agenda podcast, your essential listen if you want to know what the big political issues are in the north of England. The summer holidays are here, and that generally means our political debate goes a bit quiet, but there's still plenty of big issues to get our teeth into on this podcast. My name is Rob Parsons, and I'm a political journalist based in Leeds. I cover politics across Northern England and write it all up in a daily newsletter called The Northern Agenda, brought to you by Reach, the people behind titles like The Manchester Evening News and Hull Daily Mail. The cut and thrust of politics has died down a bit, with it being summer, so I thought what a good time it would be to take a closer look on this week's podcast at an issue that we all have to confront at some point, namely the state of our teeth. We're looking today at what appears to be a stark north-south divide in England when it comes to rotten teeth and oral health. Later in this episode, I'll be talking to a dentist in the northeast who's administering the fillings and tooth extractions for one of the worst affected areas, a leading figure at the body which represents dentists, about why it is that some areas have so much more tooth decay than others, and I'll be hearing from an MP who's raised the issue in Parliament and says urgent action is now needed from the government. The lack of access to dentists for such a period of time has basically spawned a whole new generation of people who have never been to a dentist, have no experience of seeing a dentist, that routine regular care is now not part of their of their life. It's probably the most worrying time of my career that I foresee my grandchildren uh, and their, their children after them not having an NHS dental service in the future. Some people have been driven in utter despair to perform Dickensian DIY dentistry, uh, removing their teeth with pliers um, or ordering um, do-it-yourself filling kits from Amazon. But first, let's hear about the numbers behind this story from my colleague Annie Goke, who's the ace data reporter behind the North in Numbers podcast, which you should really check out. Annie has been looking into the areas with the worst dental health and can tell us a bit more about what she's found. So, Annie, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks so much for having me. No worries at all. It's lovely to have you on. So can you just take us through the data you've been looking at? So where, where, did, where did it come from and what does it tell us in, in, in summary? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I mean, just to start off with, the reason why uh, I wanted to have a look at these figures was because um, there was a a recent report from the Lib Dems, which they also worked on with uh, the BBC and The Guardian, where they'd done an FOI to look at um, NHS waiting lists for uh, dental treatments, such as tooth extractions that are usually linked to tooth decay. Um, And they they had some really shocking figures, you know, um, they were showing that 
in some areas, kids were having to wait on average 18 months to have these procedures. So if you think like you've got tooth decay to the extent that you need your tooth pulled, these are kids waiting sometimes years in agony to get their teeth pulled. Um, So obviously a really, um, you know, shocking report and um, some really uh, stark figures there. Um, And what they found was that there was definitely like a postcode lottery when it came to these waiting lists. But what I thought was missing from that was kind of a bit further background as to broader health inequalities um, when when it comes to dental issues. And what was missing is that like some areas have a much greater demand for these services. I wanted to have a look and, and to kind of pull out those background figures. Um, so yeah, we, 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 we didn't do anything like an FOI. We were using open data from the NHS that they, they publish um, on the, the, the treatments that they're doing. You know, the figures don't give us a, a black and white picture of exactly like how much tooth decay is actually in an area, but they're a really good indicator. Um, so what they're showing is the number of treatments that NHS data dentists um, are performing, um, looking at uh, fillings, fissures and tooth tooth extractions. So these are all the treatments that would be performed on people who have tooth decay. And so it's a good indicator that areas that have a higher number and a higher rate of these treatments have a greater problem with tooth decay. Um, And where those are the areas where there's like greater demand from the NHS for those treatments. We um, downloaded uh, the latest figures from the NHS. Um, Unfortunately, they only go up to 2020 to 21. So they're not quite as up to date as we'd like. Again, show that there's like a really stark regional divide when it comes to demand for NHS dental services. I mean, I guess uh, on this podcast and in the Northern Agenda, in generally, uh, we're quite familiar with regional inequalities and there's so many different different ways that that plays out but uh, I, I was interested in it sort of manifesting itself in terms of tooth decay and dental procedures so so what did you uncover in terms of this sort of north-south divide give us some examples of how that plays out there is a really stark north-south divide in the figures. Um, so just to pull out the most kind of extreme examples from either end, um, somewhere like South Tyneside in the northeast, the rate of these uh, procedures linked to tooth decay is nearly four times as high as it is in Richmond-upon-Thames in London. Um, so you can see that, uh, you know, there's quite a, a gap in those areas. A small part of that could be down to the fact that these are NHS statistics so somewhere like Richmond upon Thames might have a greater prevalence of people using private dental services rather than NHS but as I say these are an indicator and they do they do indicate that there's like a very stark regional divide Um, and that kind of reliance on NHS services is kind of part of the problem. You mentioned that it's just the NHS not private dentists and I think we'll hear a bit later about sort of the increasing trend for people having to go private because there aren't any NHS dentists for them to see anymore. And obviously the timing of the stats, so it's the 2020 and 2021 period, which obviously we'll all remember was at the very height of the pandemic. I mean, do you think, what effect does that have on the findings do you think does that change um, I mean so what I will say is we've done these figures before and it has always it has been a problem for a long time but absolutely it has been affected by the pandemic and um, so I mean just into what the figures actually reflect so if if areas have a higher rate of tooth decay the reason for that is usually linked to deprivation essentially and so the reason why you have that north-south divide is because there's a there's a higher 
prevalence of deprivation in the north than there is in the south. That's to do with, you know, issues around diet, people's choices being restricted, but also access to and provision of NHS dental services. And so the reason why COVID kind of widened those inequalities is the pandemic had a huge impact on services, so people accessing them. And actually, studies have found that that disproportionately affected deprived people. And then um, you also had kind of behavioural change around the pandemic as well. So people's diets were affected, you know, how much you know, treats they were consuming or alcohol they maybe were consuming. Um, and so, yeah, those both those things kind of widened an existing gap. Um, but that's worth saying, you know, those health inequalities were already there prior to the pandemic and they had already been getting worse, kind of almost directly to do with austerity and funding cuts to um, dental uh, services, and also just like public health spending in general uh, around like preventative measures and all that kind of thing. So yeah, uh, I think uh, while you were saying you're, you were kind of interested that these health inequalities were being seen in dental health, it's actually all linked, you know, to the other inequalities you see with the, with other issues around the North-South divide. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose, yeah, it is, a, it is the case that dental health is just a, uh, it can, can be just a symptom of the wider sort of inequalities that we see around the country. Annie, thank you so much. There's fascinating data there. And I think uh, we, we're going to get a few of our expert guests to give us a bit more insight into what some of this means. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. So that's the verdict of our data expert, a clear north-south divide on the state of our teeth. Nine out of the worst hit 10 local authority areas are in the north and all have rates of over 300 tooth decay procedures per 1,000 people. Even in Tower Hamlets, one of London's more deprived boroughs, the rate is just 155. So it's clear from these stats there's a link between deprivation and bad oral health. Figures show that deprived children are more than twice as likely to have tooth decay than those in affluent areas and the most deprived people have the greatest reliance on NHS services, meaning they suffer more when these services disappear. But I wanted to find out whether there are any other factors at play here than just a divide between the rich and the poor. So my first stop was a dental surgery in one of the worst affected parts of the North. So let's hear a bit now from a dentist's perspective and talk to Jennifer Owen, who is a dentist in Gateshead and chairs the area's local dental committee. Uh, Jen, it's very nice to have you on. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me along. No problem at all. So, I mean, this is just a, a, a basic point, really, but how common is it for 
procedures like fillings and tooth extractions to be needed for people who don't go to the dentist that often like how bad would someone's oral health have to be to, to get to to get to that stage um so that's kind of two different questions if you're saying how common is it to carry those procedures out they are definitely our most common treatment so anything that would fall into the nhs band two which covers fillings tooth extractions root canal or all, all of that kind of remit that is our most common procedure that we carry out um, and then how bad is somebody's oral health got to be that can be it can be something really simple you can have chipped a tooth eating a crusty baguette and need a small procedure or you can have never been to a dentist in 15 years need five teeth out six fillings and a root canal so there's a real spectrum within that question of how you know how somebody needs to present in order to need some of that treatment yeah so it can be an issue of the length of time since someone went last went to the dentist can be a big contributory factor into the state of their oral health when they do eventually get to you yeah i mean length of time between appointments is definitely something that is a factor but there's lots of other issues. You could be coming every six months and have a really high sugar intake, a really poor brushing routine and, and need regular treatment. You could have a very well-maintained mouth in terms of your diet and oral health and maybe see us every three or five years and, and need very little doing. So time is definitely something because we can advise and we can we can um, pick up anything when it when it starts off as early. But it isn't just a factor of how regularly you see a dentist. There are quite a lot of other factors going into there and diet is a huge one sugary drinks can make a big difference to somebody's mouth in a very short space of time for example that's really interesting and so the figures we've been uh, discussing indicate that uh south tyneside and the northeast more generally are seeing a higher rate of these procedures than other parts of the country i mean what does that tell us or is it not quite necessarily simple as to what that what what that statistic tells us I mean, in a real simple form, it's telling us that we have relatively high levels of decay compared to other areas and we're carrying out more treatment to treat this decay. But you, you do have to then unpack it in other ways. So one reason could be that we are, South Tyneside is a non-fluoridated area compared to somewhere, say, Hartlepool or East Durham, where they have fluoridated water supply. So higher levels of decay because they aren't in a fluoridated area. It could be that they have higher levels of decay linked to kind of a lower socioeconomic status. But it also isn't necessarily just that we're doing more work. It might be that we're carrying out more work within the NHS and not as much work in a private sector. So there's quite a few, quite a few variables that make that up. But I do think it does, it does seem to indicate that we're doing more disease prevention in these areas, or sorry, disease management in these areas. Yeah, because I suppose there could be areas where the the rates are a lot lower and that is not necessarily indicative of an area that has better oral health it could just be that there's fewer dentists doing these procedures because they've all gone private which i guess in itself is not not necessarily a good thing yeah it could be that there's fewer dentists because they've gone private or just that there's fewer dentists we do have areas in the uk certainly in england that have what we call our dental deserts where there are just not any dentists to be seen so patients are self-managing self-treating so that would maybe make figures look like there are fewer fillings going in, but not necessarily a representation of the population that it covers. You've been a dentist, I see, for quite a while, more than 15 years. And I mean, has the type of work that you do changed a lot in, in that time? And, and you know, the nature of, of the way dentistry works has undergone quite a big change, hasn't it, in, in the last few years? Yeah, there's a lot of things that have changed. And, and again, 
no simple answer, but let's pretend for one second that we didn't have COVID. I think as a generation, people are more aesthetically aware um, and that covers everything from the Botox and fillers that they'll often be discussing, but tooth whitening, orthodontic procedures. When I first qualified, you couldn't persuade children to have braces and now they come in and they want them, adults want them. Never in my days would I have put a brace on an adult 15 years ago, they just wouldn't have had it. And now it's quite commonplace. So I definitely think patient expectations and their cosmetic requirements have have changed, whether that be for the better or for the worse, but but that has definitely happened. And then obviously we've had changes in the sense of how dentistry is funded and, and paid for, and, and that hasn't been hugely beneficial. Patients will pay proportionally more for one single procedure, but disproportionately too little for multiple procedures, which means that patients who need a lot of work are difficult to be treated. And then obviously we have had a global pandemic that's had a huge, huge impact on our industry for many reasons, but if nothing else, the lack of access to dentists for such a period of time has basically spawned a whole new generation of people who have never been to a dentist, have no experience of seeing a dentist, that routine regular care is now not part of their of their life. Dentists you know, haven't been going into schools, they haven't been engaging with health visitors and midwives and starting those patterns from a young age. And that, as a generation grows up, will have a huge, profound effect. So we could be in a few years time, we could be seeing, uh, like you say, a generation of people who have never been to the dentist and don't understand the importance of oral hygiene and the inevitable consequences of that, I suppose, is that they will require much more urgent or dramatic sort of uh, intervention when, when they do eventually come into contact with you. It's a cycle. So if you've never been to a dentist and your first experience of a dentist is, say, maybe age six or seven, where you're attending with pain and you meet somebody for the first time who you don't know and we take your tooth out, that then doesn't inspire a confident relationship because we don't we haven't had that ground. We haven't had that that background to build on that. So then that child grows up to be frightened of going to the dentist, having had a poor first or few experiences and then their family you know, it's bred in or oh, don't go to the dentist, it's awful, or every time you go, it hurts. And it, it really is quite quite a knock-on effect that, that can take a long time to undo that that um, that first approach. It, it really is very important. And my own personal experience, I, I live in Leeds, and a few months ago, my dentist sat me down while I was in the dentist chair and told me uh, the reasons why he was going private. Um, and so, I, so I've been forced to do that, even though the cost is a bit higher and this is something that's happening more and more often isn't it and I mean is it just purely down to this the change in the contract that we've been seeing and the sort of the perverse incentives for dentists in the NHS contract is meaning that for a lot of them it's not sort of sustainable anymore I mean sadly anybody who asks now all the way up to our chief dental officer to our recent oral health review every single piece of paper every single person in government will tell you that the NHS dental contract is not fit for purpose and those are their words so we are working under a contract that is no longer financially stable so a dentist working entirely in the NHS is unsustainable it is not possible anymore so dentistry has always or certainly for the last 10 years had to top up their NHS income with a private income in order to stay afloat So we were already on a very slippery slope going into a pandemic. Then we threw in a pandemic where costs of our baseline skyrocketed and the income coming into dental practice remained exactly the same. So charges that a patient pay are not what a practice receives. Those payments that the practice receives have remained more or less unchanged since 2006. 
which, as you can imagine, costs of everything have risen significantly, meaning that dentists now in the NHS are working at a loss. And if we see a patient with complex care who needs those multiple fillings and a tooth out and a denture, we will lose roughly £100 on that patient as a loss. Um, and obviously that's then unsustainable. So that coupled with the fact that we are seeing patients who haven't been able to access care for a while, who do need increased numbers of, of treatment, increased appointments, just means that the financial balance is just tipped completely the wrong way. We used to work under a kind of this one props up that one system. And now we're finding that there are no simple patients to prop up the complex patients. And it's meant the dentistry is financially unstable. That's a real, a real worry. And just, just finally, uh, Jen, it's, it's an obvious point, really, I guess. But why does it matter that people maintain their oral health and look after their teeth? I mean, what are the consequences for people who don't, uh, who, who don't do that? I mean, the simple answer is you get your first two sets for free. And dentistry, all dental disease, give or take, bar trauma, is a fully preventable illness. So the cost to you as a patient, the cost to a health service could be entirely avoided if people were able to maintain the teeth that they had. So maintaining your own oral health, if nothing else, is a financial incentive to you because, as you mentioned, dentistry can get really expensive. But there's more than just that. It's the social element of, of people not having a front tooth, where being uncomfortable with their dentures so they don't go out in public, they don't eat out anymore, they don't socialise, they don't want to go for a job interview, they feel uncomfortable you know, mixing with with other um with other people, and that's a huge mental effect on people. Massively damages people's mental health. Again, as we said, for children, children who have poor oral health, and then their first experiences of somebody coming at them with a drill or a needle, you know, it builds really poor lifelong habits. So, if we had a better preventative system where people weren't having those first experiences of intending in pain and weren't having to stay at home because they haven't got any front teeth or they've had to pull out their own teeth then that would, you know, that would move through a whole generation. So the oral health benefits are phenomenal. Um, it's just not hugely well received. Jen Owen, thank you so much for speaking to me today. Thank you. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best, it's possible pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line it's possible complex specialty care that cares about your roi it's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions that's wonder made possible learn more at evernorth.com wonder in the northeast the body which commissions dental services in the region is called the northeast and north cumbria integrated care board Its medical director, Dr Neil O'Brien, told me that these areas have faced long-standing inequalities and poor health for decades, while the North East suffers the worst levels of preventable mortality in the country. And this week, they unveiled a plan to try and tackle these inequalities, which includes an extra £3 million to support dentistry over the next year and a focus on patients with the greatest need in deprived communities. This includes additional funding to dental practices, which could create up to 27,000 extra appointments. But at local level, there's only so much that can be done to chisel and polish a system that has been slowly rotting for years. Speak to any MP and they'll tell you about stories of people in pain and distress due to being unable to see an NHS dentist. 
The Care Quality Commission watchdog says access to NHS dental care has been an issue since long before the pandemic, but there are clear signs the problems have been compounded by COVID-19. The wider issue that keeps cropping up is the contract which determines how much dentists earn from the NHS. It's been in place for nearly two decades now and dentists say the failure to reform it has left them with no choice but to leave the NHS. Here's Esther McVeigh, a Conservative MP in Tatton in Cheshire, explaining it during a recent Commons debate where she points out that nationwide some 90% of practices are closed to new patients, 80% will not even accept children, and in 37% of local authorities, so-called dental deserts, there are no practices at all accepting new adult NHS patients. Tatton dentists uh, have reached out to me and told me that the current payment system of units of dental activity introduced in 2006 by a Labour government back then has never worked and subsequent tinkering hasn't worked either. The Minister will probably know how it works, others might not, but a check-up with x-rays may count as one unit, add a filling or several, this could count for another two units, while providing a full set of dentures is seven. It does not pay The formula does not work, which means that dentists lose money, particularly when treating the neediest of patients, the patients who really need their care and attention. Those figures haven't stacked up, never have. Earlier this month, the Cross-Party Health Select Committee of MPs said the current contract was not fit for purpose, and said urgent and fundamental reform of NHS dentistry is needed if people are to receive the dental care they're entitled to. A dental recovery plan from the government was expected in June, but we're now in parliamentary recess and there's no sign of it. So I'm joined now by Eddie Crouch, chair of the British Dental Association, whose stated mission is to promote the interests of members, advance the science, arts and ethics of dentistry and improve the nation's oral health. Eddie, it's nice to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Uh, Thank you for asking me. We're talking about regional inequalities in terms of dental provision and, you know, the state of oral health. Does it surprise you to find out that there are such stark regional disparities uh, in, in this area? No, no, not not at all. I mean, we we've seen even before the pandemic that the, there was huge huge disparity in health inequality, oral health inequality um, in relation to access to NHS dental services. Um, but we know that in areas of deprivation, uh, dental disease is far more prevalent, and we know um, obviously with the way that we've got at the moment with. Uh, financial crisis and uh, people choosing to uh, eat differently, uh, that health inequalities are are likely to widen. Uh, And access to NHS dentistry, as many of your listeners will know, it has been a high profile. Many MPs, in fact, I've met over 250 MPs in my two and a half years uh, as chair of the BDA, um, and, and now we're seeing the effects, really, of a failing NHS dental system. Yeah, and we'll come on to sort of some of the wider failings shortly. But in terms of why some areas are in worse positions than others, is it purely down to deprivation or are there other factors as well? I mean, a, pre- a guest, uh, the dentist we had on 
just now as talking about, you know, fluoridation in the water being a factor as to why some areas uh, oral health might be better than others. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And fluoridation uh, is is part of a, a government policy. And um, we'd be interested in working with the government in implementing that as quickly and rapidly as possible. I mean, we know, for example, that Birmingham and Manchester have similar demographic. You know, we've got areas of deprivation here in Birmingham. Uh, but a child growing up in Birmingham with fluoride in the water supply is probably a five times less likely to need a general anaesthetic to have teeth taken out. And that evidence is stark. I know fluoridation is probably quite a controversial uh, topic because it removes patient choice from that. Um, but we've seen uh, in Birmingham over 60 years of fluoridation uh, and we've seen benefit uh, of that. But that doesn't mean to say that the oral health of the whole of the population of Birmingham is good. Um, we've seen a transient population. We've seen many people come and live in the area that haven't grown up in that area. So uh, health inequality still exists in, that, in, in, in our city. But obviously prevention is all dental disease is completely preventable. And the more we can place emphasis on preventing dental disease, uh, the less inequality that we're likely to see. I recall when I started as a journalist 20 years ago, writing stories about uh, people not being able to get an NHS dentist. Um, so in terms of, you know, putting the current situation in its kind of historical context, I, I mean, how bad is, is it now in terms of people's inability to get an NHS dentist? Is it as bad as, it ever, as it's ever been or have things been worse than this in, in the past? Well, no, I mean, I've been a dentist for 39 years and I've never seen uh, access problems in my own city. Uh, we have a dental school here in Birmingham and um, most of my practice in life, um, there's not been a problem for the local patients to ac access services. I mean, much of this started back in the early 2000s. Uh, Tony Blair uh, made it a manifesto pledge that everyone who needed an NHS dentist could get one. And that led to the introduction of the 2006 um, contract. Um, and, and for a short period of time, um, access actually improved in 2008, 2009. Um, those were the halcyon days, I suppose, of people able to, to get an NHS dentist. But we've done a lot of research recently that indicates about 12 million people at the moment are unable to access uh, an NHS dentist. Uh, and that in itself is just completely unacceptable. You mentioned the 2006 contracts. I know um, when I hear this discussed in Parliament, I hear various MPs, often Conservative MPs, talking about the introduction of this contract in 2006 under a Labour government is partly what's contributed to the situation that we have now where NHS dentists are not being incentivized to do the things that they need to do and they feel like they can't sustainably concentrate on NHS practice and that's why so many have left to go private. I mean is that a valid criticism in your in your view? Well uh, I, I gave evidence to a health select committee uh, 15 years ago uh, because after the introduction of the 2006 contract um, there was a complete a fall off in access um, and the health select committee uh, report that, that came out at that time said that there needed to be a radical review of the 2006 contract uh, and here we are 
you know, all these years later with another House Select Committee, almost exactly repeating what the, the one 15 years ago said. And what there has been really has been complete inactivity from ministers in actually implementing any change. We, we piloted a new way of working for many, many years, which um, was working very well for the patients that were seen in those pilot practices. It was working very well for the practices that were participating in that. But the, the real problem for the government was it was going to cost more money to deliver that better service. Uh, and as a, uh, as a consequence, it didn't fulfill their criteria because they didn't want to spend any more money on dentistry. In fact, it's one area of the health service that in real terms in the last decade has seen a net reduction. Um, what they want is a comprehensive dental service, but they're not prepared to pay for it. And Sadly, my colleagues are voting with their feet now. They've given, they've given up in any hope uh, that there is any urgency to actually reform this contract. And the report that came out in the last few weeks from the Health Select Committee may be the very last chance of actually preserving an NHS dental service because on a daily basis, we're hearing colleagues saying that they can't uh, continue. Uh, and unless that urgency is reflected in Westminster with significant changes uh, so that my colleagues can see that there is a determination to improve working conditions so that they can deliver the care they want to their patients, I really worry. It's probably the most worrying time of my career that I foresee my grandchildren uh, and their, their children after them not having an NHS dental service in the future. I mean, are there any other big issues facing dentistry? I mean, we'll talk about the contracts and the number of people going into private practice. I know there's an issue also with practices finding it difficult to recruit from overseas harder than it used to be. I mean, is that, is that one of the major topics in your inbox? Uh, we, yeah, I mean, recruitment is, is a massive problem. I, um, you know, I know of colleagues that uh, have advertised for over two years for a, a vacancy within their within their practice. And, and they may get applicants who are interested in coming. But when they come for an interview, they say, well, I really like your practice. I think it's a great place. I, I think it's the right place for me to come and work. But I'm not prepared to come here and work and deliver NHS care. Uh, and, and that... You know, many other colleagues get absolutely no uh, applications to the to their job advert at all. So workforce is a problem. Um, we still have mutual recognition of qualifications with European uh, dental schools. So anyone who qualifies in Europe can come and work in the NHS, but it's not an attractive place for them to come to. Uh, there was an influx when there was... Uh, an economic problem across Europe. Many did come as economic migrants to come and work in the UK uh, because it was an area where they were guaranteed uh, work and guaranteed income. Uh, but having worked here and worked in the system, sadly many of those have left and gone back to the, to the European Union. Uh, the government have done quite a lot recently to uh, improve uh, the potential of access, but it doesn't matter where you qualify in the world, whether you qualify in the Indian subcontinent or across any of the Commonwealth countries, um, if you come and work in a system where it's not fit for purpose, which is what this Health Select Committee has just said, then you are unlikely to stay. It doesn't matter 
you know, how many people we bring into the workforce, if that workforce is a bucket with, with holes in it, you need to fix the holes in the bucket so that you top it up with a workforce that is likely to stay and this retention of that workforce that's incredibly important. Now, the final question, Eddie, we've talked, spoken about or you mentioned the government not really getting a grip on this issue. To, to what extent is it the government's problem to solve. I mean, they, they've, I know they promised many times a dental recovery plan. I've heard the health secretary, uh, Steve Barkley, talk about that a few times. I mean, is that when that comes out, is that going to solve all our problems or are there other groups or uh, parties that could, that, that could make a contribution to solving this, this issue? Well, you, you're right about the dental recovery plan. We were promised that at the end of June and now we've gone into a parliamentary recess and we've not seen that recovery plan. I believe that recovery plan will talk about urgent, uh, imminent changes uh, and possibly point to longer term changes. Uh, And it needs to be really ambitious in those urgent changes. Um, I I worry that that there's an internal argument going on between ministers and NHS England in what is contained in that plan, which is why it's been delayed. Um, we're happy to work with any stakeholder, and we've worked alongside lots of patient groups. Health Watch is one of the uh, people that we've worked collectively with uh, to, to make the working conditions attractive to the profession, but also to allow that the profession to provide a more modern, uh, preventative type of dental service that the, the public of the UK desperately need. Eddie Crouch, thank you so much. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is an issue that's cropping up time and time again in Parliament, with MPs on both sides of the House pressing the government for action. Have a listen to this clip from Prime Minister's Questions in May, where City of Durham MP Mary Foy puts this question to Rishi Sunak. Unable to secure an NHS dental appointment, my constituent, Ray, was forced to go private. It was then discovered that he had a large aggressive tumour in his face and jaw, which required 16 hours of gruelling surgery to remove it. If if he hadn't been able to afford it, Ray might not be with us now. This is yet another chapter in the horror story that is the decay of dentistry under this government's watch. So will the Prime Minister accept NHS dentistry is in crisis? And will he meet with me and the British Dental Association to ensure that no one loses their life because they couldn't get a dental appointment? Yes or no? Uh, Mr Speaker, I'm sorry to hear what happened to the Honourable Lady's uh, constituent uh, and that's why the NHS has recently reformed dental contracts to improve access. We now invest over £3 billion a year. There are over 500 more dentists working in the NHS this year than last year uh, and indeed discussions are ongoing between the Department for Health and uh, the NHS around dentistry and DHSC is planning to outline further reform measures in the near future.
So I'm joined by Mary Foy now. Uh, Mary, welcome to the podcast. Um, what did you make of the Prime Minister's response to what you asked him at Prime Minister's Question Time? Well, it was it was quite a ridiculous answer um, to suggest that there was more dentists. There may be some more dentists. There weren't NHS dentists. Um, and in fact, I raised a, a freedom of information request and stood up and made a point of order um, to the to the prime minister that actually there were 1,100 fewer dentists undertaking NHS work um, than before the pandemic. Um, so I've asked them to correct the record, but I'm still waiting for them to do that. In the lead up to your question to Rishi Sunak, you, you raised the case of your constituent, Ray, who's had a horrible time. I mean, I guess presumably Ray's example is uh, just one of many that you hear as an MP about the problems that your constituents have due to not being able to access NHS dentists. I mean, just, just give us an idea of the kind of things that you hear on a, on a day to day basis. Yeah, I've actually I've had a, I've had hundreds of people um contact me about about the crisis because I I undertook a um a, a dental survey alongside the British Dental Association and was actually shocked by the scale of the response that I received. So hundreds of people are letting me know that they either they cannot get a dentist because the dental practice is reducing the NHS provision, or they've just fallen off the the records that, that they're dentists um they've moved to the area or maybe they've just had children and trying to get a place for their children and just can't see it because um just nhs dentists are seeing fewer and fewer patients so really some of the stories they've told me are um really very serious and some people have been driven in utter despair to perform Dickensian DIY dentistry, uh, removing their teeth with pliers um, or ordering um, do-it-yourself filling kits from Amazon. It's absolutely... I didn't, even know you could, uh, I didn't even know you could get such a thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but this you'd know yourself how bad it is if you've got a toothache. Um, and th these people have been um, just drove in desperation to taking their own teeth out. And in fact, it's that bad that... Um, it's the biggest cause of children going to A&E &A, A &A departments now is because of tooth decay. Yeah, it's uh, and we've been talking in the podcast earlier about some of the issues that, that, that poor oral health raises. So we know that there's a really serious problem. What do we do to address it, in your view? There's a couple of solutions. I think in the in the short term, it's really clear that the dental contract needs fundamental reform. Um, for instance, last year, there was £400 million of funding clawed back from dentists by the NHS because the the dentists didn't, um, didn't meet the required target. So we've got a, a quite a ludicrous situation where that um, the government can't even spend the money that is budgeted for dentistry and patients can't see a dentist. So it definitely needs that. The contract reformed and I think in the longer term we do need a national dental strategy um, and really properly establish where oral health sits within the NHS because it's just been seen as an extra extra um, an optional extra at the minute but I think we need to focus hugely on prevention especially in the poorer areas um, and really ensure that these health problems don't worsen don't worsen because they're left untreated. We know that 
people who are um, not seeing their dentist, it means that it's costing the NHS more further down the line. Like in the, the, the issue with Ray, who ended up having oral cancer, or children going to A&E, that's costing the NHS dentists, um, the NHS more further down the line. So we really need to... Um, we really need to push on prevention and have a proper strategy on where oral health is. We played a clip from uh, Esther McVeigh, a Conservative MP, who talks about the fact that the contract which is causing so many problems for NHS dentists was drawn up under a Labour government. Obviously, it's not been tinkered with or not been not not been reformed radically enough under 13 years of the Conservatives. But when you can see that this is an issue that while it may have got worse in the last few years, uh, goes all the way back to a different a different government, a different regime. Yeah, yeah, yeah you're right. It was It's fair to say that Labour introduced the contract in 2006, but by the time of the election, the general election in 2010, it was clear that it needed reformed. Um, and sadly, we've been we've not been in power since then. Um, and, you know, it's a bit of an excuse for the government to deflect the blame away from themselves when they have been in power for 13 years and haven't once sought to, to fix it. And in fact, the situation's got a lot got a lot worse. So I guess that leads on to the next obvious question. We're, we're, we're getting close to election season, maybe only a few months away. And um, what would Labour be doing differently if 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 the Labour Party was in power now? Do you, do you know what the, the policy is on on dental care and what what they would do? Well, obviously, we're going to, um, when we do get into power, we're going to inherit an NHS that is on its knees. And there are lots of issues, wide issues in the in the NHS that we need to fix. But I do think that um, well, one of one of Kia's five missions is to build an NHS that's fit for the future with a long term prevention at the heart of it. And dentistry really has to be central to that to ensure that well kids don't end up in in A&E with with tooth decay um I, I, I really do think I've I've spoke to Keir a few times raised it with him um and so I, I'll keep pushing on that I think at the minute what's happening is and the, the the British Dental Association have described um the government's little bit of tinkering is just rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic and that there really needs to be fundamental reform to the contract and um, to make sure that dentists stay within the NHS, they're actually leaving because it's not worth a while um, staying in the NHS. Um, so, yeah, uh, we will have a long-term long NHS plan and dentistry needs to be central to that. I think for far too often it is seen as just something on, on the outskirts. It's that op optional extra. Um, so I certainly will be pushing for dentistry to be um, critically looked at. But I guess the reality is, regardless of who wins the next election, such as the 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 way that things have gone in the last few years and the the, the crisis that dentistry is in, it's going to take a while, whoever gets in and whatever they do, to get things back to where they need to be, isn't it? So there's going to be constituents like yours, like Ray, uh, or, or other people who are they're going to continue they're going to continue having the same problems for a while. It's not going to be an overnight an overnight fix, is it? You're right. It, it, it's going to take an awful lot of work to for the whole of, of the NHS to bring it back to the um the standards it used to be that those standards that we enjoy one of the best health services in the world. 
Um, so yeah, there will be children and adults who will be suffering for the next year or two or more until the reforms have been made. And that's why one of the urgent the urgent um actions needs to be to reform the um the contract so that dentists stay and do extra work within the NHS because they're there. It's just that they're doing they're doing more private work rather than NHS NHS work. So that is the that is the, the immediate action we need to take. Mary Foy, thank you so much. Thank you. So what is the government doing to end the misery of constituents like those in Durham and elsewhere? I asked the Department for Health whether Neil O'Brien, the minister in charge of dentistry, and not confusingly the Neil O'Brien I mentioned earlier in the North East, would speak to me, but he wasn't available. But a Department for Health spokesman told me we are working to improve access to NHS dental care, investing more than £3 billion a year into dentistry, and the number of children seen by NHS dentists rose by 43.6% last year. We have already increased the funding practices received for high-needs patients to encourage dentists to provide more NHS treatments, announced a 40% increase in dentistry training places, and have amended the guidelines so dental therapists and hygienists can deliver more treatments. Further reforms are planned for later this year. Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast. And don't forget, you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk. It's more important than ever for Northern voices to be heard. The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons, and it's produced by Daniel J. McCoughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. Also, check out the other laudable podcasts. See you next week. Bye-bye.